Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to April's edition of Recharge, the podcast of Battery Materials Review. Thanks for tuning in to our update this month. There's lots of really interesting stuff to talk about, and we've got two featured interviews with Nigel Ferguson, MD of ASX-listed AVZ Minerals, whose Monono Lithium project has featured in our drill bit section, highlighting the sector's best drill results more than any other project. And we've also got Andrew Spinks, CEO of ASX-listed Kyberon Resources, to talk about his company's strategy in both upstream and downstream graphite development. Our lead article this month in Battery Materials Review is on funding. It's true that it's been a tough funding environment in battery materials over the past year or so. We've tracked 73 financings of greater than a million dollars over that time, but the bulk of them have been below 10 million US dollars in size. However, the larger deals do highlight that money is there for existing producers and for high quality projects. It's not great news for the more marginal projects or those that depend on experimental tech, but the absence of funding for those sort of projects is positive for the longevity of the battery materials supercycle. In our features section this month, we ask whether self-sufficiency in battery raw materials is a pipe dream for the US and Europe. We've looked at announced megafactories in each of these regions and then calculated how much raw material would be needed to supply them on an annual basis. It doesn't make good reading. The US is worst placed with no current manganese or flake graphite reserves and minimal production in any of the battery metals except for aluminium. Hopefully no Canadians will come after me, but if we factor in that famous additional US state Canada as well, then the situation looks better, but there's still less than 15 years of reserve life in lithium, nickel, cobalt and manganese. While there may be more resources out there, looking at the economically extractable portion, i.e. the reserves only, the situation looks pretty dire. On to Europe, which of course has made a pretty big fuss about investing in the battery value chain over the past six to nine months. In Europe, we find that although there seems to be a better resource base in lithium, graphite and nickel, there has similarly been a lack of investment. And what we find most galling in Europe is that while funds have been made available for downstream, there is a significant lack of both support and investment for actually getting the stuff out of the ground. We think that the US government and the EU have got this the wrong way around. Given that it takes one to two years to build a battery factory, two to three years to build a chemicals or intermediates complex, and seven to ten years from discovery to production to build a mine, shouldn't governments be looking to give better support to the actual mining part of the equation, rather than just pumping money into R&D? And given the state of the capital markets at the moment, we think that that has to include financial support as well if they're serious about being vertically integrated. If governments don't start to support miners financially now, then in five to ten years when there's a shortage of raw materials to supply all these battery factories, it'll be too late. So rant over. You can read the full article in more detail in the April issue of Battery Materials Review, available on our website at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. Now, moving on to this month's news flow. First up, is two contrasting situations in the rare earth space. The $612 million acquisition of Neo Performance Materials by Luxfer has fallen through after both companies agreed to terminate the deal. At the other end of the spectrum is West Farmer's $1.1 billion US dollar bid for Linus Corp, 
which gave wings to the whole of the rare earth sector this month. Linus's board turned down the West Farmers' offer, which relied on a number of conditions, but it certainly shows that there's lots of interest in rare earths from outside the space. In lithium, where new supply over coming years is a key focus, we've got a report highlighting how indigenous communities in Argentina are challenging new lithium projects. This, coupled with water concerns in Chile, could derail a significant proportion of expected incremental lithium capacity over the next decade. Sticking with lithium, embattled Namaska Lithium, which announced a cost overrun last month, has announced measures to slow construction activities as it looks into how to plug its funding gap. Despite the recent fall in raw material prices, battery recycling remains very much in vogue, and Fortum announced this month that it had achieved a lithium-ion battery recycling rate of 80% using a low CO2 hydromet process which can recover cobalt, lithium, manganese and nickel. Sumitomo Metal Mining has also been working on a process to recover cobalt, but while successful at the pilot scale, it's some way behind Fortum in having a commercial process. In the battery space, the big news of the month was BNEF's report that said that the benchmark levelized cost of electricity for lithium-ion batteries has now fallen to $187 US per kilowatt hour, a 35% fall since the first half of 2018. This is all to the good, as we move towards the time when EVs can achieve cost parity with internal combustion engine vehicles. VW and European battery maker Northvolt announced an alliance to invest in the whole European battery chain from raw materials to cell technology and recycling, which could be very significant from a European viewpoint. Elsewhere, we're starting to see an acceleration in activity in India, which has been up to now a laggard in the battery space. There have been a number of battery manufacturing plant announcements in recent months, and we're starting to see the storage market take off, with bids for 3.7 gigawatt hours of storage invited by Solar Energy Corporation of India this month. We flagged a couple of months ago how conservative the US EIA's EV take-up assumptions were in its 2019 outlook. The prize for heads being stuck most firmly in the sand this month, however, has now moved on to Saudi Aramco, whose chief technology officer was quoted as saying that the company expected 90% of vehicles to still be driven by internal combustion engines by the mid-21st century. It seems that while many oil companies are embracing EVs and new technology, Saudi Aramco isn't. Moving into EVs, China rolled back its subsidies on EVs by a greater than expected margin this month, cutting subsidies for short-range EVs considerably. But it's potentially not so bad because much of the money saved is instead being directed into investments in EV charging infrastructure, which should still be supportive of EV sales growth in the medium to longer term, even if there are risks in the shorter term. In storage, Germany and the US beat records in 2018, and home storage was a major part of that in both countries. In Germany, there are now 125,000 homes with home batteries, and that is growing steadily. In the US, 15,000 home batteries were installed during the year, and that's even with a lack of availability for Tesla Powerwall batteries. To round up, an interesting tale about solar-powered car parks in, of all places, Scotland. Not noted for its huge number of sunny days, a consortium is planning to use vehicle-to-grid technology and smart charging to assess whether solar-powered car parks could contribute a helpful revenue stream for sports stadia, airports and retail venues. Good luck to them. So that's a brief roundup of the 34 pieces of news flow in this month's magazine. 
We also have 28 exploration company updates, 18 development, 20 other company updates, and six technology stories. If you'd like more info on any of these, then be sure to check out our website. We featured three companies in this month's drill bit section. The first is AVZ Minerals, which we've highlighted many times. I won't flog a dead horse, given that MD Nigel Ferguson will give greater detail on the project later in this podcast. The second is TSX Venture listed Birkwood Resources, which had some really strong results from its Lac Guere South project in Quebec, with intercepts of over 100 metres at in excess of 20% graphitic carbon. Finally, AIM-listed Iron Ridge Resources had good results from infill and extensional drilling at its lithium projects in Ghana. What is particularly standout about these projects for us is their close proximity to the coast and deep water ports. In other exploration news for this month, Northern Minerals published a maiden mineral resource estimate for the Dazzler deposit at its Browns Range project in Western Australia, with total rare earth grades of 2.23%. The stock was up over 100% for the month. In lithium, Orocobre and Advantage Lithium published an updated resource on their Calchari JV in Argentina, with a measured and indicated resource of 4.8 million tonnes of lithium carbonate equivalent at a grade of 476 milligrams per litre. In development news, Johnson Matthews secured a site in Poland for construction of its first plant to produce its portfolio of ultra-high energy battery cathode materials. Pilbara Minerals, as well as declaring commercial production at Pilgangura, published results from the scoping study for stage three of the project, which is expected to produce 1.2 million tonnes per annum of spodumene concentrate for an incremental capital cost of $226 million. There were a couple of profit warnings this month. Syro Resources warned that its graphite realised basket pricing was below guidance for the quarter, impacting earnings. Albemarle warned on the timing of sales, cutting its forecast for Q119, but leaving its 2019 estimates unchanged. And Sumitomo warned that production from its Ambatovi nickel mine was once again below forecast due to plant issues. For anyone who has followed this project over some time, not a great surprise. In technology news, there are two really interesting highlights this month. Firstly, a team from Brookhaven National Laboratory has identified causes of degradation in high nickel cathode materials and found that this degradation was a reduction of surface nickel, which impacts efficiency of the cathode. The team can now look at how to reverse this trend, which could be significant given the current focus on high nickel batteries for EVs. A second fascinating paper came from a team from Stanford University, which used artificial intelligence to predict battery life. This could have significant implications for commercial testing of batteries and also for development of new technologies. After a number of months of strong EV sales, February, unfortunately, was not a good month at all, with a significant decrease in Chinese sales, which had a knock-on impact on global sales. With the cut in Chinese EV subsidies in March, we are a little bit concerned about what EV sales will look like over the next few months, even though we expect Tesla sales to be strong in Europe and China, which we hope might offset weak activity to some extent. In raw materials, it was a bit of a mixed bag in February. The lithium carbonate space was complex with Chinese imports down, Chilean exports and export prices down, but Korean and Japanese net imports are now heading towards record levels. 
This again highlights the differentiation between spot and contract, with contract prices trading significantly above spot and contract demand for materials still robust. Chinese cobalt raw material imports remained depressed and cobalt prices fell again in March. In the graphite space, China remained a net importer of flake graphite in February. While graphite prices were off a touch in March on excess supply, it certainly wasn't a collapse. Moving on to equities now, and our rare earth equity basket was our top performing basket in March, up 25%, with the Linus bid and Northern Minerals Maiden Dazzler Resource dominating basket performance. Cobalt was our worst performing basket, down 21%, with a 9% fall in LME cobalt and a 26% fall in Chinese cobalt sulfate prices, certainly contributing to the malaise. Vanadium was our next worst performer, down 7% for the month, unsurprising given that vanadium pentoxide prices gave up 27%. They have now given up all of last year's outperformance. Our lithium baskets traded pretty much in line with the spot price, and we would still flag that graphite equities alone among battery materials equities look extremely undervalued compared to the commodity. More details, of course, in this month's battery materials review, which you can subscribe to via our website. It's currently on a special offer of 12 issues for the price of 10. Fill your boots. So that's all of the key news flow for this month in the world of battery materials. We were lucky enough to catch up with management teams from two very interesting companies this month. In the graphite space, we're joined by Andrew Spinks, who's Managing Director of Kyber and Resources, and uh, Christoph Frey, who's Technical Advisor and also a Director of the company. And uh, we're going to talk about Kyber and Ipanko project, but also their Ecograph downstream business. Gents, welcome to the call. Hello, Matt. Good morning. Um, okay, and I'll just kick off. So your Apanco project has an 11.6 million tonne reserve, but a significantly bigger resource. What's the potential to increase the reserve and either the mine life or the throughput for the project? Thank you, Matt. The resource at uh, Apanco is potentially enormous. We've delineated a significant reserve to last a mine life of 20 years. We completed an EM survey at the beginning of the project, which outlined a massive body of graphite. In fact, to the south, the body doubles in thickness and is clearly open. Um, we've only drilled 10, less than 10% of the area. So we believe there's enough graphite uh, at Apanko to scale up and match the demand as the demand continues. The production is very much scaled to demand. The initial production is 60,000 uh, tonnes of natural flake graphite. Based on the current growth, we expect to see a panko growing its production base from 60 at around 10,000 tonnes per annum. So in two years time after production commences, we'd increase production from 60 to 80,000 tonnes per annum. That's a quite a significant increase. So you've got the Apanko project in Tanzania, and it's got a completed BFS. And then you've got the downstream Ecograph project. Which one of those is your primary focus at the moment? Look, clearly when we started, Apanko was the priority. We're in quite a fortunate, unique position that both developments are uh, development ready. We've took the strategy about three years ago to go downstream. Our Tanzanite graphite operation producing 60,000 tonnes secured a financing arrangement with KFW 
in 2017, and it was six weeks away from development. You know, unfortunately, uh, the project has been delayed since that time, but we're very confident that um, the situation in Tanzania is improving and there's a number of recent events that's really supporting foreign investment coming back into Tanzania, which positions our Tanzanian graphite is ready for development and we've got a clear financing route for that. And our downstream ecograph business is also ready. We're about to release an updated optimization study on that front. So just to clarify, the reason for the project being delayed in 2017 was kind of circumstances outside your control? Absolutely. We had a funding strategy clearly in, in place, supported by KFW IPEX, which is the largest state-owned bank, through our offtake partners, which were Thyssenkrupp, European Trader, and Sajits Corporation in Japan, underpinned a, um, a debt financing process. So, But it was it the issues with the Tanzanian mining legislation that, that caused that project to be delayed? Absolutely correct. Okay. And that's effectively sort of sorted out at this stage now? Look, we've been working with the government over the last uh, two years with our lenders, and there's clear there is clear signs that, that the environment is changing, and there's a real intent by the government to attract the financing back into Tanzania. Okay, so let's move on to Ecograph. From the releases that you've put out, it looks like a really fascinating technology. What would you say its advantages are over the existing graphite purification technologies that are in the market at the moment? Maybe I can take over. You know, I think the main advantage is uh, that we use different chemistry for our process. As you might know, the Chinese, they use the HF, so the hydrofluoric chemical, which is very toxic and dangerous uh, chemical. We use uh, a different chemistry with uh, non-toxic chemicals only and which makes our process much more eco-friendly. Another really advantage of our process is that we are not only eco-friendly, more eco-friendly, it's also that we are cost-competitive compared to the Chinese, but also cost. we have a cost advantage compared to other methods like thermal purification or others. So could you talk a bit about the sort of value add that you get from being an integrated high-purity graphite producer rather than just a miner of graphite? Obviously, the main advantage is uh, that you have a wider range of grades and applications. And uh, with these wider range, then you also can access a larger range of uh, customers. And, uh, you know, if you produce some value-added material, it's already in the name, then, of course, uh, uh, you have a higher value, which usually also provides higher margins, which, of course, is also always a good advantage for, for any project. Can you sort of give us an example in terms of the prices effectively? So what price would you be selling graphite concentrate at? What price would you sell just as an indicative of the high purity graphite at? Usually concentrate is not really something which is traded. So usually you screen your concentrate and then you have uh, the screened crates which deal between 600 and, and 1,000 US dollar per ton. But then if you do some value adds, let's say you do some purification and you do some micronizing for application like powder metallurgy, then you're maybe in a range of uh, 1,700 to 2,000 uh, US per ton. But always depending very much on the amount of efforts you have to do, on the specification and so on. And that's the sort of price that your Ecograph product would sell at? You know, the Ecograph is a purification method. 
which uh, is able to produce very high purities. So this is uh, something for application like for lithium-ion batteries or other demanding application where very high purity is uh, required. So with EcoGraph, we can achieve uh, purities more than 99.95%, which for many applications is not really necessary. So EcoCraft then, of course, is, uh, you know, it's a more intensive purification than also the, the purification cost is a little bit increased. But then also the prices we can achieve, of course, are also higher. You've tested EcoGraph on more than just the Epanco graphite. And from what I see, it looks to be viable for other graphite sources as well. Is there any impact on its recovery when you use different sources of graphite or graphite concentrates, I should say? We used uh, our EcoGraph method uh, for more than 10 different samples from different deposits. And uh, except for one, we always uh, achieved very good results, always more than 99.95%, which shows that it's a really robust method and that it can be used for almost all graphite, flake graphite, uh, which is available. So this method can be used for the anode, as I said before, but also for other application. Now you were asking for the recovery. The recovery is not really determined by the method of purification. The main factor is the feed, the carbon content of the feed material. So the lower the feed carbon is, uh, then the lower the recovery. So usually you try to get a higher feed carbon, maybe 95, 96% carbon, and then you get a very good uh, recovery also during the purification. You talked a little bit about it before, but can you share anything about the actual process of EcoGraph? Unfortunately, not too much because we applied for an international patent and we don't want to disclose uh, already now uh, what we do. But I just can tell it's a sophisticated chemical process. So no thermal or whatever, it's a chemical process. And what are the major operating cost inputs for EcoGraph and how does that compare with, for instance, the Chinese purification processes currently in use? Look, maybe, Matt, I can uh, jump in just before Christoph. We're about to, um, we're finalising the 20,000 tonne per annum case based on the optimization study we completed last year. With that update, uh, which is due shortly, we'll be able to give, you know, report more detail on that cost base. But I guess we're very confident that uh, based on what we're seeing to date, that we're going to see a lower cost than the, the Chinese supply, which is, gives us a significant capability of supply into the market. Maybe, Christoph, you can add some more around the, the inputs. Uh, so we know that more than 50% of the cost for the process in China is uh, just the cost for, for the hydrofluoric acid, for the HF. So also in our process, uh, the main cost uh, are the chemicals we are using. However, replacing the HF is a massive advantage with regard to costs, but also, as I said before, for health and safety and also environmentally. Excellent. Thank you very much. So from the data you've released, I gather that a 5,000 tonne per annum ecograph plant would cost around 25 million US dollars in capex. And to increase to 20,000 tonne per annum would cost an additional 40 million dollars. What's the regional strategy for rolling out EcoGraph and what's the timing likely to be? The current demand is all at the moment Asia, China, South Korea and Japan. We've been doing enormous amount of product qualification in those markets. So we very much see the first facility starting up 
at 5,500 tonnes in an Asian location. And that's effectively based soundly on that's where the market is. We expect demand is at a point where we are seeing significant increase in, in demand from that market. Our focus, as I mentioned at the beginning, is, is ex-China. And uh, we're going to see by the end of 2020, the current sort of demand around 20,000 tonnes increase five times to 100,000 tonnes. So we'll quickly ramp up that facility to 20,000 tonnes. Obviously, we're seeing a lot of development of factories, gigafactories in Europe. They're currently looking at um, cells coming from Asia. However, the announcement last week, which was really exciting between Volkswagen and Northvolt, talking about uh, developing uh, manufacturing cells in Germany and Europe, is going to shift the raw materials. So we're very much positioned for that shift. And, you know, Christoph is obviously based in the centre of, of that industry. We've built our pilot plant in Germany to really position ourselves for that shift in demand. And, and the German government announced last September an in support for cell manufacturing. Excellent. Okay. So moving sort of swiftly on, what's your financing strategy likely to be for Ecograph? Are you going to look to bring in partners or would you prefer to build the plants yourself? Our financing strategy, I can just go back to the, the upstream business is, is very much centered around a debt financing strategy with the our banking partners that have been carried out enormous due diligence. We're on the downstream business. We're very much looking at collaboration and partnerships. We're in discussion with a number of groups and believe that those partnerships will contribute to the financing of these facilities under a JV style. And that's really the focus of the upstream and downstream. And I guess given that both those business cases are detached, they don't need to start in together. They're, uh, I think the work that Christoph's been doing on securing other sources, we can start Ecograph on the development of those partnerships. So broadly speaking, I think by the end of the year, we would be well under construction for Ecograph. I don't think it's probably realistic to say that we would be in production, but we'd be close to finalising the uh, construction of the Ecograph facilities. So by the end of this year? Yes, that's the oh, okay. uh, strategy. So I guess the, the final question, and, and we've obviously touched on it a fair amount, but in your view, what do you feel are the key differentiating factors for Kyberon against the rest of its peer group of graphite developers that, that really investors should be concentrating on? Oh, look, our production strategy is very much matched to demand and focused on an ex-China market in Europe and Korea and Japan, as, as I've stated. I think our strategy has attracted three of the largest traders in two of the largest markets outside of China. That has resulted in us being the only group that has attracted development bank financing. We're the only group that has, a, has completed an independent due diligence for the upstream business. So the technical upstream business is completely de-risked through that process. That was a, uh, a process that took uh, over 12 months. It took an additional $12 million to satisfy the independent engineer uh, that we've met, international financing and World Bank standards. 
And I guess the development-ready nature of both our businesses, the upstream produced natural flake graphite into the traditional market and the downstream business to produce battery graphite to meet the specifications required by the lithium-ion battery anode manufacturers. Maybe, Christoph, you'd like to add some points as well. Yeah, I think it's uh, worth to mention that we are very advanced with our product qualification. So we have a lot of interaction with end customers for different applications. And of course, one of these applications is uh, the battery market. where We are working closely together with uh, leading battery groups. And I think this is also a significant advantage what we have. Excellent. Okay, that is very, very interesting indeed. Thank you very much for your time today. So that's been Christoph Frey, who's the technical advisor and director at Kyberon, and Andrew Spinks, who's the managing director. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks, Ben. Moving on from Graphite now, and in March, we were lucky enough to be joined by Nigel Ferguson, who's MD of ASX-listed AVZ Minerals, which is developing the Monono project in DRC, which seems to be a monster pegmatite occurrence. Nigel, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you very much. So just uh, crack on straight away with the questions. Last year, you released a resource estimate on the Roche geopegmatite of 400 million tonnes at uh, one point, just about 1.7% lithium oxide. And you continue to get some extremely strong drill results. This year, you've released some amazing drill results on the Carrière de l'Est pegmatite. Do you think it can match Roche Dior in terms of tonnage? Uh, most definitely, Matthew. The prospect there at Carrière de l'Est is uh, of similar size with regard to strike length and uh, width, we've got about a 150-metre-thick main pegmatite sitting on top of several other pegmatites of between 20 and 60-metre thicknesses. Grades are outstanding. We've got a higher-grade zone within this pegmatite. It's a much more traditional zoned pegmatite, but those zones are running 2% over 30 to 90 metres and they're expressed at surface. So, yeah, very exciting times for that extra prospect. Excellent. And given these results, how much additional exploration upside do you think you've got at Manona? In a word, massive. Roche Dour has only been drilled out over 1,800 metres of strike length, and we've got 5.5 kilometres of strike length on the, uh, the Manono sector, or Kitatolo sector, I should say. And then in the north on the Manono sector, we've uh, got the Carrier de Les prospect. That's only covering around about 800 metres at the moment with drill holes, but the prospect itself is in the order of about 1,200 to 1,500 metres long. And then we've got an additional three kilometres strike length on the back end of that as well. So, you know, our, our uh, exploration target was uh, somewhere in the region of 1 billion to 1.25 billion tonnes. I think that's uh, easily achieved. Excellent. Wow, that really is huge. So this potentially could be the largest pigmentite or hard rock project in the world. Well, I think from a contained lithium metal point of view, it is already about 6.65 million tonnes of Li2O. So yes, I mean, without a doubt, it could be the largest single undeveloped lithium project in the world. So last year, you released a positive PEA on the uh, project, which supported base case production of 440,000 tonnes per annum of 5.8% spodumene concentrate over 20 years for quite a reasonable capex, around 150 to 160 million US dollars and FOB OPEX around $320 a tonne, including royalty. Given the resource upgrade potential, are you looking at a higher throughput or production rate for the PFS or the DFS? Yes, we certainly are. We have uh, the original scoping study was 2 million tonne, which is the figures you're talking about. 
2 million tonne throughput. We're talking a 5 million and 10 million tonne throughput. We're still waiting to finalise those because we're waiting on some figures from uh, transport entities that are owned by the government. So we're still waiting on those numbers to come through. But um, certainly that would be uh, high on our list to investigate if the market could afford to take the extra supply. I think we'd probably be swamping the market if we were 10 million tonne. But if we're 5 million tonne, I think that's probably achievable. That produces roughly 1.1, 1.2 million tonnes of concentrate. But then that also provides us with uh, an issue of transporting 1.2 million tonnes of concentrate. So we would look at uh, upgrading possibly the system to accommodate a hydroxide plant or something like that. Okay. Yes. So that's going to be one of my later questions. Obviously, transport's a key operating cost factor for you. Can you just talk us through the current transportation solution as envisaged after the scoping study? How many vehicle movements would be needed per day on that, on the 440,000 tonne per annum production case? That's roughly 1,500 tonne per day of concentrate. So we'd be looking at uh, 25 trucks of uh, 60 tonnes, so doubles, double trucks. It's a lot of trucks, yes, but uh, we believe we can get that done. Our uh, fallback position is that we would uh, go to the copper cobalt route, which is basically through Lubumbashi to Durban Port, or even take a left-hand turn in Zambia and go through to Mozambique or even through to Dar es Salaam. But we do have the road from Monono heading back down to the Kolwezi Lubumbashi Road. That road of about 450 kilometres is being upgraded as we speak. There are about 220 kilometres along that already, 80 kilometres of which is, uh, is already tarmacked. So that would provide us with a day's trucking from Monono site to Lubumbashi and then follow the route out from there. Preferred route, however, is to head east through to Dar es Salaam because it's a shorter distance. We're still investigating that. We've had some quotes in for uh, upgrading of roads. We would have to build a small facility, a port facility for ourselves, barge the product across and then either rail it from the Tanzanian border, uh, Tanzanian lakeside border, through to Dar es Salaam port, or we would truck it the complete distance. Brilliant. Obviously, you're operating in the DRC. Uh, there's been a lot of column inches written on the DRC, particularly regarding the new mining legislation and its impact on the cobalt industry. But can you confirm that the mining royalty on lithium remains unchanged? It does. There was a, a missive put out by the government stating basically that cobalt, tantalum and germanium were the three that were going to be boosted up to 10% royalty tax. No other minerals have been included uh, or metals or bulk commodities have been included. So it stands at 3% for uh, export of lithium. Obviously, with the bulk tonnage being an issue, one way to get around that would be to look to integrate a little bit more downstream. Would you consider putting on an integrated lithium hydroxide plant at any stage? Would there be the raw materials to supply a plant like that? Yes, of course. We've been internally discussing that for uh, quite a while now, given the fact that uh, you know, if we increase from 440,000 tonnes to 1.2 million tonnes, are we going to be able to transport all of that material? The obvious route there is to go down a hydroxide plant or maybe even a sulphate plant. So upgrading would certainly be on the books. Yeah, you're quite right. I mean, we are you know, expensive on our, uh, on our transport. It's uh, 62% of our cost at the moment. So we're, we'd look at every angle to try and get those costs down as much as possible or maximise the amount that we're selling the product for. So yes, hydroxide plants there. And as for raw materials, most definitely they are available. We've uh, 
had initial discussions uh, with suppliers and there's no problems with You've obviously got a lot on at the moment. What are the sort of next few steps for AVZ in terms of catalysts and uh, reportables that are due out? So we've got an upgraded mineral resource statement coming out, estimation coming out fairly soon. That's going to be including, I think it's 12 drill holes from Rochdor, which we have not included previously. And they were essentially designed to try and catch the a little triangle of material that sits beneath the, the flooded pit. At present, that's sitting in a, an inferred category, so we want to get that up into indicated at least. If we can, then obviously our mining proven and probable reserves are going to go up because we're expecting an increase in the measured and indicated resources. So that's the first one. We have appointed or contracted a, a consultant engineer to complete some initial work on the gap between where we are with the scoping study and where we need to be with the definitive feasibility study. So that process has started uh, being uh, organised and reported and we should have a full report through on that within the next couple of weeks. That'll give us an indication of where we need to go with definitive feasibility study and the work that's been completed to date, which is as essentially of a feasibility study nature, where we need to augment that and add additional information. The MET test work is probably the next biggest one that we've got uh, happening at the moment. We've got 13 tonnes of sample. I hope it's sitting in a boat. It was reported at Dar es Salaam, but I hope it's sitting in a boat on the way back to to Perth to be completed uh, through the Nagron facilities here in Perth. That will give us a much better indication of the average grade we'll be looking at for a concentrate product. The previous grade of 5.8%, we believe, was low on where we should be. We're expecting it to be around about 6.2. Tin and tantalum are obviously in the system as well. Uh, There's 300,000 tonnes of tin defined at the moment, and we believe we can have some benefit out of that to the bottom line. So we'll be investigating the recoveries of those two products. And then there's other products that we could be looking at as well as the complete suite of test work you would be doing for... uh, rock strength and uh, workability and grind indexes and all those sorts of things as well. So that's all going to be happening as soon as the product gets home, probably two, three weeks, I would think. And then we should have three months worth of test work with uh, continuous reporting on that. Apart from that, we'll probably put another six drill holes into Carrier de Lest and maybe run a resource on that. It would probably only be an inferred resource, but it'll give us an indication of where we're at. The scenario there is that maybe we can use some of the high-grade near-surface material as feed to the plant initially or maybe even as a blend to bring the grade up. That's probably about it. I mean, we just want to press on with the scoping studies, get the 5 and 10 out once we've got the numbers in. We are engaged in interviewing potential chairmen for the company, augmenting the board with uh, additional skill sets as well. Yeah, just pushing forward with meetings in China with potential offtake uh, partners as well. And then obviously the big one is the debt funding for the project once we find out exactly where we want to be with the process we choose to move forward. Okay, so it's going to be a pretty busy year in terms of news flow for you guys. I saw last week that your strategic Chinese investors increased its share. That must be pretty reassuring for you when you sort of pull the trigger, when you're ready to pull the trigger on development and financing. It is. They've been sleepers so far, supportive, but uh, sleepers. They haven't shown their hands at all. But uh, we were very pleased to see that they bought on market to bring themselves back up to their uh, uh, nominated level so that they can remain with the board position. 
more recently, the meetings we had in Shanghai turned out to be very positive and they're very supportive of the work that's been done. And moving forward, they're very supportive. And I don't know whether you, a lot of people would, would understand that they actually have three operations in the DRC already. So they've got a very good handle on operating costs, contractors, et cetera, et cetera, which we could dovetail off and use the benefit of. That's brilliant. I think that's very reassuring. Just finally, to close up, for you as a managing director, what's the key factor about your company that you believe that investors don't really appreciate from your experience of meetings, et cetera? One, I think they don't believe the size of this deposit. And unless you've actually been to site and wandered over it, you really don't get an appreciation of the size of it. But uh, the numbers are real. It is going to be massive. And I think the main second point that people are a bit skeptical on is that it can that this can be put into production. I see no reason it can't. It's all a case of choosing your path carefully, having the right people on board, which we're building the team up now that we've uh, been operating in DRC since 2004. So we've got a good team. And then, of course, the idea of upgrading the product sooner rather than later to a hydroxide or a sulfate or a, or a carbonate. I think hydroxide is probably the way to go, which would mean a significant investment. But you know, with the cash flow from concentrate sales, we pay this property or this project off, the debt funding off within the second year. Within the third or fourth year, we could certainly have a hydroxide plant up and running on the property as well. I think that's the key factor is that it can be done and we will make it happen for sure. Nigel Ferguson, MD of ASX listed AVZ Minerals. Thanks very much for your time this morning. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. And that brings us to the end of our roundup for April. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. Until next month. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.